0: Hmm, are you sure about that? Is that what you think? Is that so? Hi, I'm Saka, the host of Saka's Is That So?, a show where we challenge conventional wisdom across a range of industries, hoping to get you to ask better questions and not take things at face value. I'm originally from Botswana and Nigeria, however, I've had the chance to travel through Europe, North America and Latin America to have many of my assumptions challenged and combat my biases. The goal of the show is to help you learn along with me as we challenge more conventional norms. We're recording the show during the coronavirus, so hopefully you should have more than enough time to listen to these. Let's get started. On today's episode of Sokka's Is That So, we're gonna be talking about the misconceptions around accelerators, more specifically around accelerators for good. So we'll first and foremost start off with what exactly is an accelerator? Most of you might not actually know about this unless you're actually in the startup world. But in general, an accelerator is a platform that brings startup founders together for a specific amount of time and gives them the tools, networks, And all the things necessary to hopefully make them be successful and make sure that whatever business idea they have comes to fruition now there's so many accelerators all around the world some of them are dedicated to uh, particular verticals types of technologies geographic locations but Some of the hardest ones to get into include things like Y Combinator, which is based in San Francisco, which has been running for quite a few years now. And some of the most successful companies in the world have actually come from them. So it can be really, really competitive to get into these spaces. So you know, just like the name suggests, startup accelerators provide professional services to help accelerate the growth and foundation of a startup, you know, to the point where they can actually begin to stand on their own feet. But the application process, as I mentioned, is very, very difficult. The good news or the benefit of it is that you'll actually receive some sort of mentorship and funding as opposed to what most people would think on the outside which is you're given just the tools or the necessary infrastructure but no mentorship or guidance or perhaps no money at all is pretty much just a, a cool we work that you can go in and work at or hopefully bring your idea to to the market but the reality is there's mentorship and there's funding assistance from time to time um, and also there's a really strong network around you Accelerators can provide seed investments in return for equity or shares in the company as well, uh, which can pay off pretty handsomely, especially for the uh, the accelerator themselves if the company becomes a unicorn later on in the future. So, accelerators in general, um, you know, there's the part of it which is really important, which is the fact that there's a strong network around you know you when you're actually going through these accelerators. You now, most people would think that it's you on your own. But the reality is that you are with a group of other founders that are going through the same thing as you. So they could be everything from small classes and you know expert lecturers and things like that, whereby people come in and give you hands-on uh, type of learning experiences that can help you bring your, your idea to, to market. It's not just a case of, oh, you have this cool work and then you go along your journey. No, it's a lot more uh, than that. And another part of it is, it actually brings about a healthy competition because if you're with a group of other startup founders, you hopefully would be competitive enough to want to, you know, be better than some of your other colleagues or even push for farther than, than um, some of them in the actual cohort that you're in. So in some ways, it does drive you to want to be more successful, especially when you see other people. I wouldn't necessarily call them competitors, but other people that are striving to, you know, be successful and do something that's pretty unique and pretty interesting. Another thing that I wanted to speak about was the fact that um, accelerators on their own are pretty much only there for profit. Now, that's what we'll be speaking about today with a good friend of mine named Orr Weingold, and he is starting up an accelerator here in the United Kingdom, which is dedicated to sort of social enterprises. And you would think that this would mean that they're non-profits, or should I say they're not profitable, or at least their goal is not to make profit. But the reality is that you can actually make money by doing good so or is going to actually talk us through that a bit later on and my initial misconception about this would be the fact that if you do good can you actually make money off of that is it actually showing a positive return on investment so to speak uh, hopefully we will have some of those assumptions challenged as we go through uh, the actual interview later on but stay tuned and hopefully we'll get into more of what that entails now one thing that i wanted to go through as well about accelerators in, in general is the fact that you know you get access to these experienced mentors and things like that but you also gain a valuable network beyond just the people that are coming in to teach you and also those that are part of the network as well investors oftentimes look into these accelerators for the next big thing so you can start to develop a network with venture capitalists or all those types of uh, those companies or should I say those uh, capital intensive uh, industries that want to deploy their capital and actually do something that's unique and interesting and hopefully will uh, bring them some level of, of, of success. Some of the most famous You know accelerators that i can think of off the top of my mind there's one called the halt prize global accelerator there's the y combinator one which i mentioned which obviously has has is probably the biggest one of all um they've had some of the biggest companies go through them another one is called tech stars so tech stars is also a pretty famous um in fact they're often described as one of the ogs or one of the original accelerators but they have programs running in about 15 countries um and it's about 12 weeks in terms of the length of their program. Some of them are as little as, you know, a couple weeks. Some of them are 12 weeks. Some of them can be up to half a year. Another big one is 500 startups as well. So there's so many. In fact, in the UK here, one of the biggest ones is um, is one called Waira that I know of. But they actually have presences in Latin America and a few other places. So... Again, there are different types of startups or should I say accelerators that are out there. you got to find the one that's relevant for you because not all of them are created equally. Um, I know personally that Y Combinator, if you get into there, it's like getting into Harvard or Stanford. It's almost seen as you know, one of the top ones to get into. So don't uh, you know ever make that assumption that it's just for, um, you know, these random startups that are trying to get into the application process. And actually getting into those accelerators can be quite tedious and quite Uh, a a tough journey to go through, but hopefully it should be be worth it uh, at at the end of it once you actually go through the entire process. Now, I wanted to go through a little bit of how exactly um, these accelerators are defined. Um, A lot of them are defined according to their success rates. Uh, not just the companies that come into them or the startups that come into those accelerators. So the success rate is very important for them. And ultimately what they're trying to do is create companies that are gonna change the world. So you would think that because they have such a rigorous or intense application process, that most of them would end up being successful. But even so, if you look at the statistics, it's something like you know one out of every 10 will still be successful after the accelerator is done. So it improves your, I mean, it, it tries to improve your chances, but ultimately the market is what decides what will be successful, what's useful, and what won't be. Well, let's go into the interview with Or and hear what he has to say. He's done some amazing things so far, um, and he is based in London trying to ensure that we have accelerators that are actually aimed at being um, profitable, but while doing good at the same time. Well, Orr, thanks for being on the show today. It's a pleasure to have you. Um, if you could just give people a quick two-minute background. I mean, your history is so interesting, and that's why you know, I thought it'd be great to have you on the show. But I mean, what is it that you're looking to do right now?
1: Cool. Well, thank you for having me on the show. Uh, My pleasure. So I guess my background comes um, in a brand side. So I've started off my career at Procter & Gamble L'Oreal and then moved into the startup space um, and then kind of had a bit of a loss of heart for uh, for business world uh, and actually saw what happened with Brexit. So I jumped into politics and ran for parliament in 2017 um, and then after that kind of worked a little bit more on the kind of political side of things uh, before coming back and realizing that you could actually have business that also does good in the world and that's what we're focusing on. So we build um, an accelerator which is helping the next generation of entrepreneurs build really successful global businesses and um, that also has a positive impact uh, on the world and its stakeholders. So that's kind of where we're at. We're really early doors, um, but we're kind of opening for applications uh, pretty soon. Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah. For
0: me, it's, it's, it's even more interesting because most people think businesses only need to go after sort of the EBITDA, the revenue and mm. you know, share prices and all that good stuff. Right. Why do you think it's important for people to actually want to go for the good or try and look at things that are, beyond the sort of metrics, well, why is that important? Why should they even do that?
1: Yeah, I mean, if you're gonna be just, let's say let's take like the pure capitalist point of view and kind of why you should do this as a capitalist and then we'll kind of move on. Um, like in the long run, either governments or consumers are gonna kind of stop your activities. So either government are gonna tax what you do uh, and that's, that's the move that, that governments are going to. Um, and kind of pollution charges are, are things that, you know, we see already in London. Um, all consumers are going to stop buying your product. And the evidence for that is if you look at kind of millennial or Zoom consumers, they are um, much less motivated by buying from those kind of big, big kind of corporates and they're moving towards buying from more ethical brands. And so you see the kind of proliferation of um, startup brands, ethical brands, and they're doing much better in the long run. So their returns are actually exceeding um traditional businesses now. And so, you know, if you're a big business, why would you not want to go down a route that is, um, that gets you more consumers, uh, gives you less kind of political risk? Um, but then finally, the kind of big point I also make to, to, to entrepreneurs and, and companies is, um, young people, smart young people have all the choice of where they want to work now. And so if you want to attract the best talent, the best talent wants to work somewhere that does good, pays well, is doing something interesting in the world. And so, you know, if you're competing for that kind of entrepreneur, uh, employee, Employee, um, you've got to offer something that's that's a bit more ethical as well in what you do.
0: You just described a nirvana. If I could have a place that has <laughs> great pay, is ethical, and meets all those boxes, that would right. be great. But there aren't those, you know, that many places that can meet all those boxes. Typically, what you see is, or at least what I see, is, um, you know, institutions that want to do good. They don't have that much, you know, money or funding behind them. So they can only afford to pay a little, a little amount in terms of salary or remuneration right. and things like that. But you're saying that it is possible to sort of have the two.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there's some big companies that are really obvious to point to like Patagonia, Lululemon, Innocent, who, who are kind of quite big now, um, the slightly kind of smaller companies behind them now, like all plants, Tony's Chocoloni who are coming through, um, in the food, food and drink space. Um, but, but you're right. There is a challenge, um, with the number of these businesses and actually, when I speak to investment managers at kind of places like, you know, Octopus and, and those kind of uh, kind of investment places, they, they say, look, there is um, a gap that there aren't enough of these businesses that are globally scalable coming through. And that's why we exist actually. So we see that gap um, and we want to make sure that entrepreneurs kind of bake, bake into their business model, a, a for good aspect. And so that's, that's our role. We're kind of looking to build the next generation of those businesses. Uh, Cause I agree there aren't enough. Um, But there is the demand for it, and there is also um, the kind of appetite by employees to go and work for these places as well. So that's that's what we're in the market to do. So it sounds like it's a supply Mm -hmm. problem, right?
0: Absolutely, there aren't enough people creating scalable businesses um, that are ethical, that are perhaps profitable, or at least have a path to profitability at some point. Absolutely, that's it.
1: Yeah, you're right. That's it. It's a it's a supply problem. but but there is a lot of people who want to start these businesses. And so the the challenge for us is just to to find those people and give them the right tools so that they can scale. Um, and then when they come to raise investments, so they go for their, you know, whether it's seed or, or series A, et cetera, um, there are a lot of investment managers who have specific ESG pots that they're looking to deploy. And at the moment, one of their challenges is, look, You know, I can, I can, you know, spend money on a wind farm. I can spend money on kind of capital projects. That's really easy for me to do, but I'm looking for these startups. And so they're, you know, not desperate, but they're crying out for these startups. And so what we want to build is that kind of ecosystem. And, you know, there's people like zinc who, who also do it, um, uh, BGV also do it, um, yeah, so there's, there's a few other players in the, in the space but if you look at kind of how many accelerators and incubators there are the percentage that focus on that kind of dual bottom line of of, of purpose and profit um is still quite small and so we're quite early on into that kind of proliferation of the space
0: yeah you got to start somewhere man you Absolutely. know rome wasn't built in a day as you say <laughs> but um but yeah i think i think it's a great mission that you're you know trying to undergo one thing i am cognizant of or at least I've worked in marketing for a little while. So right. sometimes you can see the sort of um, utopia that's presented. <laughs> oh, we're trying to do good and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And then when you do a, big, a bit of digging behind the scenes, you start to see that, you know, that's not the reality. It's just the way they're marketing it yes. to us. You know what I mean? And so how do you uh, battle or how do you balance those two things between presenting yourself in an overly optimistic, hey, we're saving the world, or mm. we're ethical, versus the reality in terms of, if you look at supply chains of maybe some of the clothes manufacturers, right? They're still using sort of slave labor and all that kind of stuff, yeah. but the way they present themselves is, oh, we're all about being bold and being amazing, and you know, all that kind of stuff. But they <laughs> yeah. have to compete in the marketplace, so they have to go for the lowest um, uh, you know, cost in terms of labor and all that kind of stuff. Right. So, uh, in other words, I'm trying to get to this dichotomy between saying you're ethical, saying that you're trying to do good, but. The realities and practicalities of actually running a business, which require you to be a bit ruthless and just go for the bottom line. Mm. How do you think you're going to be able to marry those two things, or do you think there is a way to bridge those two?
1: Yeah, so I think there's like, I'd I say there's almost two questions there. Um, one answer I'd have is that firstly, um, so Ronald Cohen is probably the, the furthest ahead out of anyone in the UK in terms of this space, and he's been investing for like 20 years in kind of what we now call ESG. Um, and he's, he's starting to kind of share the results that they're getting. So he's saying, look, um, uh, I'm comparing this to other kind of investment manager and funds. Um, and we're getting as good, if not better returns. So firstly, um, kind of there's, there's some evidence from him. Secondly, there's evidence from the Carlisle group They just released, uh, the report last week, um, and they're saying they're getting better returns on ESG than on their traditional investment. So, um, I guess what I'm saying there is that it is profitable to be in ESG or impact investing or, or whatever. Uh, whatever term you, people call it. Um, so there is money there. Um, but in terms of how you make sure that you're keeping, um, honest, I suppose, to the standard, um, <laughs> that's something that we, we are really kind of thinking about really carefully. And so our approach to it is that, um, there are guidelines out there. So there is B Corp, um, there's Future Fit, there's the GIN methodology. Um, and we have to kind of think of something that's realistic for startups. And so that's, that's basically what B Corp is trying to be. It's trying to be that kind of fair trade stamp on front of the packets, in front of you know websites, et cetera. So um, so they're a very high standard. Um, so we're kind of going through their methodology at the moment and it's it's tough. Like they 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 they, they have a, a serious standard to meet. Um, but what we're trying to build is something that's kind of realistic for for brands to to take on. Um, and the and the thing the b Corp Kind of methodology is probably the best there is out there at the moment. Um, their biggest challenge is being recognizable. So you know, like when you go to a supermarket and you see the Taste Award, you know that you know what that is. You know it's going to be a good product. Um, so they have some work to do on that front, uh, but they're getting there. You know, they're getting there.
0: Okay. Yeah. No, that sounds interesting. You're you're a pretty international guy too. I, I know that right. you know that standards vary from place to place. talk about standards, right. um, mm. you know, you've been to you know Israel. You've worked in Europe for a little while. You know, you've you've been around the world a little bit. And, you know, in this world, that's going to sort of a deglobalized world, it seems mm. like, you know, we had the trend going in one direction, mm-hmm. now it's reversing. Uh, do you see that as posing any challenges to what you're trying to do in terms of there's a variance in standards everywhere? Good in Europe might not mean good in Africa, might not mean good in Asia. Right. So how do you balance out this difference in uh, global perspective, especially into the, the world that we're going into? Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a great question. Um, I think. Firstly i would say that you're right that the world is becoming deglobalized when it comes to politics and movement of people but when it comes to capital the world is becoming even more globalized so <clears throat> something i read recently is that you know the american and the chinese investment funds now see european and particularly british assets as undervalued uh, because of the fall of the pound. And so you're going to see uh, particularly Chinese funds coming and in investing at seed at Series A stage like we've never seen before. And so from a kind of movement of capital, we're seeing a much more globalized world. But you're right, politically, uh, movement of people, it's, it's going in the other direction. Um, and in terms of standards, yeah, so I think there isn't a global standard yet, but I think that's what people like B Corp and Future Fit are trying to be. Obviously they're like maybe five, 10 years away from being big in sort of Asia or potentially kind of South America, you know, they're not, they're not quite kind of making it to those places. Um, but that's their overall vision. And I think, um, you know, we're considering becoming a B Corp, we're considering making that a requisite, a prerequisite for our, our businesses, our startups coming through the program, um, to kind of support that movement. But I think there needs to be a globally recognizable standard, like, you know, your fair trade, uh, which is fairly uh, recognized now around the world, um, and I think that 's what the kind of impact investing space needs to move towards, and we all need to kind of support one standard eventually. there has to be one winner
0: yeah we 've got to choose something right it 's better than right. nothing right exactly yeah,
1: yeah yeah yeah, I mean, but also people know whether you 're abusing like transparency is growing right so Um, whether that's kind of hackers who enforce that or kind of leaks um, we are seeing a more transparent world and so you know let's take boohoo for example people see what happened in the factories in Leicester pretty quickly people know what's happening in Foxconn in in China Um, we're gonna see more and more of that and so um, there is kind of just you know, we can say there's a technical standard, a B Corp standard, but it's also just like a human decency standard where we know that this isn't right. Like we know that what Nike was doing with its kind of slave labor wasn't right. Um, and then people kind of put pressure on these companies to change their practices. And, and that's, that's the world, that's the consumers that are going to be so much more vocal. Like you think millennials and uh, Gen Zs are going to let you get away with it? No way. Not anymore. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's changing rapidly. And for
0: the better, you know, in most regards. Uh, There there are two things that you said there that kind of stand out to me. Number one is the fact that we got to rely on hackers and leakers, (laughs) you know, for us to have any sort of transparency. That's such a pervasive kind of incentive structure. And, yeah, it's just so weird, you know. How did that ever... Uh, become commonplace. We would expect that the infrastructure or the systems that we set up would incentivize people to want to be more transparent. But it seems like it's the other way. You want to keep everything hidden and, you know, we can't let the public know too much about what's going on. And, uh, you know, coming to that marketing messaging that I mentioned mm. earlier on. Um, but, uh, yeah. And then the second one was, you don't have to tell me about the devaluation of the pound, man. That thing (laughs) hit like a rock. It was insane. Um, you know, coming from the United States and coming over here, I was like, Oh my goodness. You know, this Brexit thing is really messing me up. Um, (laughs) but anyway, I just want to make a comment about that. Um, but you know, you you have a very interesting background and now you're trying to set up an, an accelerator. And I can't imagine that's an easy thing to do. Where do you even go to start? Setting up an accelerator, Do you just say, "Hey, we need a couple bean bags and a cool spot, and <laughs> let's let's like you know start to do some cool stuff." Or like, right. what are the steps involved in trying to create an accelerator?
1: Yeah, I mean, you're you're a spawn. It's not like a super easy process. That's why uh, people don't do it very often. Um, how do you set it up? I guess you start with some like what I would call founding principles of like why are we doing it? What's the problem we're trying to solve? So that's how I approached it. So. I kind of identified four problems and how we're going to solve them so problem number one is that there aren't enough globally scalable um, kind of impact and very profitable businesses so we kind of said right there aren't enough of them there's money coming into the space but there aren't enough to kind of take that cash so there's a gap secondly um, they're not very strong brands so accelerators are typically focus on building great tech and great teams and they kind of forget that there's a there's a brand behind that and so they're not they don't really focus on that. Um, my background is kind of 10 years of marketing. Um, we've got Jason on the board who's the former kind of CMO of um Clarks and Nike and he worked with uh, Alexander McQueen when he was uh, when he was alive and we've got a partnership with Uncommon who just won kind of creative agency of the year. They're the kind of former head team at Grace uh, London. Um, and so they're creating our brand and they will help, um, the underlying entrepreneurs kind of build globally, scalable brands. So that's kind of the the two things. So this is, this is going to be a long answer. (laughs) Um, uh, but kind of, and then kind of the third main thing that, that I would talk about is that, um, mental health is a really important thing now for for entrepreneurs and i think historically there was this kind of bravado of um you know founder burnout you work really hard like it's really bloody difficult to do what you're doing like if you crash and burn that's fine like it's actually kind of like a statement of honor um and i think that that is just just not the the modern world anymore so the young people particularly um are really aware of that um and what struck me as really interesting is that when you're a VC fund and you invest into an entrepreneur, there isn't very much care taken into that actual human behind that. So they just kind of look at you as a kind of, um, as an asset, right? But actually, if your entrepreneur is stressed out, if they're burnt out, if they don't know how to deal with um, the kind of pressure that comes with running a business, then your whole investment is, is in danger. So um, so what we do is we work with entrepreneurs um, to build resilience is, w- is what we call it. So it's kind of got three parts to it, but we help them effectively, what I call um, Become Great Lobsters. So if you know how become lobsters- Become what? A lobster? Become Great <laughs> Lobsters. So the way lobsters grow is like, they have to break through their shell every time they grow. Mm. Um, and so that's a painful process for lobsters. Um, and entrepreneurs go through the same thing, right? They have to like make their first hires, make their first 50 hires, grow internationally, etc. So they they go through that similar growth Phase, um, but we're going to just train them how to make that process slightly less painful.
0: Yeah, Now that's deep, man. That that hit home. I'm going to save that quote for sure, man. <laughs> you're like a lobster going
1: through different stages.
0: <laughs> Did you yeah. learn that like the Himalayan mountains while you're meditating or something like that? <laughs>
1: I was there. That's how the I found it. But yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh man, that's so interesting. Is there is there anything that you learned? Because I mean, you're a pretty audacious guy. You ran, uh, you know, for a member of parliament at some point in your life. Um, is there anything you learned from that that you're translating into? this now because i imagine there's a lot of organization messaging mm. um you know there, there's so many fac- factors involved with what you're trying to do now walk me through that process of running for you know mp and is there anything you learned from that that you can translate into sort of the business world what you're trying to do here
1: yeah i mean that's that's a really interesting question um yeah that's that's a good one i think you know, I think there's a lot of pressure when you run for Parliament. So I think when you're um, an entrepreneur and you're a leader of a business, like people look to you to, to lead in the right way. Um, and I think when I was running for Parliament, you have kind of teams of, five, 10, 50 people, a hundred people, a thousand people looking at you in a debate and you're constantly on. You have to make sure that you're kind of representing the message that you're acting in the right way as a leader. Uh, and that's not something I experienced before, but now I have to in this business. Um, and it's something just to be really aware of that, you know, we set an example as leaders and, and that's obviously quite an obvious statement, <laughs> but actually being in that position and taking that responsibility quite seriously, um, kind of means I have to be mindful of, of how I'm behaving. Um, and I think, you know, historically I've always worked for other people, but now you've got to kind of step up to that. Uh, and, and that's exciting, and that's fun, and that's something that uh, politics would teach you. And then the second thing is about idealism versus pragmatism. Oh, yes. So, yeah, yeah. so I ran as a Labour candidate. Um, I was strongly against Brexit. Um, I had pretty strong views about kind of I was pretty pro-immigration. I just thought, of, you know... Kind of felt really uncomfortable about where the country was going, um, and you're kind of sitting there talking to people on the doorstep who strongly disagree with you. Um, they feel the complete opposite, actually, and um, and you've got to find a way to kind of, if you can move them even like an inch, then I think you've done you've done something right. Like you're trying to move them more, and that's the same as when we're trying to influence the whole investment industry. We're trying to influence the the kind of corporate structures and, uh, and ways of being. And so I think, look, if I can get Procter Gamble, Gamble, if I can get Sony to just act 5% more ethically because they see these startups who are coming through, who are taking them on and actually, you know, they want to kind of move a little bit towards that space, then brilliant. You know, I'm super happy if everyone just moves slightly. So that's that kind of pragmatism um, that I've got a little bit of.
0: Yeah, I'll take any little inch I can get, you know, along the way. Whether it's in I don't want to say negotiations or even trying to convince people, but as long as you're moving the needle overall direction in a certain way, and at right. least you're making some impact in terms of what you want to see happen in the world and things like that. But um, but no, that's that's very interesting, man. I I don't think uh, there are many people that have made that jump from you know trying to be an MP to trying to be an entrepreneur and all that. That's that's pretty interesting. But how did you know when you were ready for that step up to actually become a leader? You know that that's something that. I don't really say I've struggled with, but you almost have to see yourself as a leader before you can actually do it. Because you have to have that faith and conviction that I can be a leader, right? Mm. The first thing is I can, and then you actually do, right? If you, there's a quote or saying somewhere where it's, if you say I can, or if you say I can't, you're right either way, right? right. Because it, it all depends on your personal sort of manifestation and what you're thinking. Yeah. But what were some of those indicators that let you know, I was ready to be a leader or I have enough conviction in what I'm doing that I'm able to stand in front of people to present, you know, and and make myself vulnerable because mm-hmm. leadership is vulnerability, right? I mean, you're open to a thousand people criticizing you, you mm-hmm. making the wrong decision, all the consequences. What were some of those indicators that you you figured out that were like,
1: you know what, I think I'm ready for this. <laughs> I think I can do this, you know what I mean? <laughs> that's, that's a funny question. I mean, really honestly, um, I didn't know if I was ready and I, don't think i probably was um i think that it just it just happened you know i was basically I kind of made this deal with the world. I was like, look, I don't want to do this business thing for a little while now. I want to do something in this political space because of what's happening. And I felt very, very strongly, like I really, really kind of felt our country was kind of going in the wrong direction. And, um, and I'm an immigrant to the country and I kind of benefited massively from, um, from kind of the old structures that I saw under labor. And, uh, and I thought, you know, if someone comes to this country now, um, they're not going to have the same opportunities that I had. And I think, you know, if you come in, you climb the ladder and then you pull it up behind you, I think that's a pretty bad thing to do (laughs) like that. That doesn't feel very good. And I I didn't want to, I didn't want to be that kind of person. And so, um, I felt very strongly in the cause. And so I think I didn't feel like I had personal leadership. I felt like I had a very, very strong cause that was going into bat for, Mm. um, and so, I think that's the same in this situation here. Like I'm not somebody who's been in VC for, for 20 years, right? I'm not a founder with a successful exit. Um, I'm someone who's kind of experienced the startup world, um, but I have very strong conviction about what needs to change within the VC, within the kind of corporate structures. And so I think if you can find a mission that can be a fairly good substitute until you kind of learn the ropes of your industry, because. If you're that driven, you're going to work really, really hard to to, to to be successful and to make it work. So, yeah. you know, you can rely on that. Yeah,
0: no, that's an excellent point. Uh, I, I had a similar sort of experience in my life as well, where you're sort of called to leadership, if yeah. that makes sense. You know, it's sort of... Um, it's weird. You have to sort of believe in yourself to a certain extent, but it, I think there's a mission or a cause that you'll see That's so important that you feel almost compelled, right? You know, and you kind of uh, get pulled into that position exactly. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh man, all right I'm actually a leader in this space people look to me for direction in this but it's, yeah. it's sort of a It's weird because oftentimes you see the, the the best leaders are not people that even wanted to be leaders right they were kind of just put in that position you see people that are offered ceo positions and they declined it like three or four times you know until people are like come yes. on we really need you here you know what i mean um but yeah. it's, it's such an interesting thing you know it's sort of like your pull or your call yeah. towards leadership um just based on the fact you see something that's so important to you um that you you resonate with and i guess as part of your accelerator you're looking for ceos and founders that have such a drive and calling towards a particular mission. Right. How are you going to marry those two things together? Because um, the CEO or founder might have one thing that they want to do, but you guys have a certain remit of the types of investments you're looking mm-hmm. at. You know, I, I don't know if it's specific sectors or verticals or whatever it is, but is there ever a time when the CEOs or the founders that are coming with their sort of mission that they want to bring to the world um, versus the missions that you actually want to bring to the world or the visions that you want to bring to the world How are you going to marry those two or is it going to be a case of literally leaving the CEO? What is your vision? Yeah, and because you're so passionate about it. We're gonna go with that idea.
1: You know what I mean, right? Yeah, exactly um, So we're sector agnostic um, but we 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 do want to focus on The more b2c space because that's where a brand is really important and actually that's where the demand is, so consumers are the ones that are actually driving the more ethical um, kind of debate, right? So consumers wanna buy from ethical brands. So it lends itself more to B2C brands. And so we have a slight lean towards that, but it's not kind of, we don't segment or kind of say no to people. Uh, we, we look for uh, really driven founders. We look for people who are just got amazing visions, who've got big visions. Um, we are not scared by someone who's got uh, what some people call like unrealistic visions. Um, for for tomorrow and I think we are we actually encourage that we want people with the biggest possible visions and part of our process is to push people to have bigger visions so we talk about globally scalable businesses um, we're not looking at just European or, or UK based and so we're building our investment space from American investors Chinese investors, European investors, um, because we want these entrepreneurs to make change at a global, global level. So we want the bigger, the vision, the better. Um, and we want people who believe in it. Yeah. I, I had a question for you when you talk about kind of being called to, 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 to something because yeah. I, I certainly can relate, relate to that. And people have then said afterwards, oh, you're, you're so courageous to do that. But in that moment it doesn't really feel like courage because you're kind of being called and i was wondering what your experience was of of that kind of thing
0: yeah it's it's kind of weird but you you find that courage somewhere if that makes sense there's um there's no particular moment but you just feel that this is such a hole or a gap that i have to fill it someone has to do something about it and you kind of look around the room and you're like wait all right no one else is going to do this all right crap i'm the guy that has you know what i mean all right." right and I don't, I don't see it as courageous. I don't see it as, um, something odd because courage invokes sort of feelings or sentiments of, um, externality. Like you're bringing in courage from somewhere else, if that Mm -hmm. makes sense, right? Like, oh, you see something else and it gives you courage or, you know, you see someone that does something amazing and it gives you courage. I kind of don't see it that way. It's not an external thing. It, It comes internally Um, and it's sort of a step up in your, in your way of thinking. That's kind of like, oh man, I got to do this. You just get pulled into it and you don't actually think that I'm being courageous. You're just doing something that needs to be done and inadvertently it's viewed externally as you're being courageous, if that makes sense. It's, It's not an external thing at all, really. It's just an internal, you're pulled into something. Um, but yeah, I, I. I just saw, the re- one of the things I'm thinking of is, is actually at the, the company I work at, uh, we founded like an African-American, UK ancestry network, or whatever it is, um, just cause of the whole Black Lives Matter uh, initiative. And um, yeah, I saw that no one was really doing much about it. And I was like, I gotta step into this. I gotta yeah. do something, you know? Um, cause it's such a powerful movement, you know? We have an opportunity, we have a couple months really before the world forgets about this, exactly. like, you know, something else uh, to do something. And um, even if I don't see the benefits, my kids, kids might see the benefits, you know. So let's do something like that. I, I imagine you feel something similar as well, where it's like I want to do something now because we have a window of opportunity. Right. Do, you, do you ever feel that sort of pressing um, urgency around what exactly. you're doing?
1: Exactly. Yeah, I can totally relate to that, um, and, and I have huge respect for you for doing that because I think you you have a you do have a platform, and you are also working in quite a you know prestigious, well known uh, organization. So changes that that you make are gonna make quite a big impact potentially, like you've got that opportunity in front of you. So I think, I think that's awesome to do that and inspiring for other people. So I think that's great. Um, and yeah, I think it's like, I like this idea of like the moment calls you. And I think that's what I felt when Brexit happened. And I think, you know, Corona and what happened now, I think there is a moment, you know, whether it's Corona or black lives matter, there is um, kind of the pieces are up in the air and we do have a choice about how we reassemble the the new world. And I think, um, you know, I, I'm excited about bringing together people who are passionate about reassembling it in a slightly better way, a more equitable way for, for everyone.
0: Yeah, yeah, I completely agree, man. You know, I, as a kid growing up, I would see the structures of the way the world was. And, you know, I always wondered, why do people sort of just follow blindly what's already been? Why can't right. we decide to look at it from a different angle you know maybe we didn't always have to commute for an hour and a half to get into (laughs) london i I thought that as a kid even you know i was like this is so bizarre this is so strange you know it's crazy that it took a Cataclysmic event like Corona to really change our mindset. But it takes a certain sense of bravery to be able to do that, to actually challenge the status quo, put your professional self out there, put your credibility on the line Mm. to even want to change these things before it becomes popular. And everyone's like, oh, yeah, of course we should do this. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Have you, so have you, have you tried to do things before and they've just not worked out? Like people have, have sort of rejected them. Is that, has that been your experience?
0: Yeah. You know, I have. Um, and it's because people, I think gravitate towards comfort and the yeah. familiar, right? So anything that breaks out of that silo, especially if you're a particular, I don't wanna say political background or proclivity, but anything that breaks out of that, it's hard for them to adjust to you, right? It's kind of like, ooh, that's the unknown, the scary unknown, but I embrace the unknown, man. Do you know what I mean? I'm kind of like an adventurer, like a rebel in that regard. It's like, right. I don't know, let's see where the chips fall as they may, you know what I mean? Uh, can't get much worse than this, you know yeah. what I mean? So it's like, let's, let's actually go for it, let's try it out. Um, and I think that's partly what pushes humanity forward, right? That's kind of. We have to be bold and willing to try new things without which we wouldn't have half the stuff we have today. We wouldn't be as advanced. We wouldn't have human rights. We wouldn't have any of these things. So, um, you know, someone has to take that leap of faith. Someone has to try it out Um, and it doesn't always work. You always hear about the success stories. You never hear about, you know, the failures that happened along the way. But um, actually speaking of failures, what are some (laughs) of the failures that you, you know, really uh, learned
1: from along your your path so far? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, that's a great question. I like to ask that as an interview question. What's the failure you learned from the most? Yeah. Um, that's a good one. Um, I think this touches on the question that you asked earlier, actually. Um, so I set up an NGO to work with uh, the Israel-Palestine conflict uh, like four years ago. And we had this big vision. It was like a 15-year program, um, and we were raising money for it. So we had, we had an offer to, to kind of fund the whole foundation. Um, and in the last minute, the kind of charity partner we were working with pulled out. Uh, and for them, the vision was so big. And they were actually worried when it came down to it, they were like, okay, so we're going to have kind of presidents and prime ministers on our, on our property kind of doing uh, talks. We're going to have the next generation of leaders from Israel and Palestine. Uh, what if something goes wrong? You know, the reputation of, of this charity could just, you know, we've spent 10 years building this charity. What if something goes wrong uh, and, and someone, you know, something happens? Um, and so for them, the, the vision was actually so big that they rejected it in the end. And they said to me, look, we can either make it smaller um, compromising your vision a little bit um, or we, we can't do it. It's too big. And it was the day we had the money. It was the day that the, 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 the it was actually a big private equity firm who offered us the money to do this as part of their uh, foundation. And, um, and I chose to not compromise in the vision and said, right, it's either this vision or nothing. And then, you know, four years later, nothing's happened. So that, you know, what's my lesson there? It's, you know, pick your partner as well, number one. (laughs) And uh, and number two, kind of, is something better than nothing? And that's the big question I debate now. Um, You know, do we stick to this uh, really pure vision with what we're doing? um or do we have somewhere in kind of in the middle that we kind of compromise so maybe the businesses are not kind of greta green maybe they are kind of <laughs> slightly less than greta but they're still they're still on their way yeah um and that's that I think that's the kind of big lesson I took from that
0: oh fantastic well thank you so much for your time we really appreciate yeah, it yeah well it's where by. People, where can people find out about you
1: yeah so we are we're launching uh, our brand but i'm i'm on linkedin um Orvine gold and we're kind of launching our brand in the next uh 3 weeks fantastic so i'm coming to work in it yeah Sounds good. Cheers. Yeah, thank you so much. Pleasure.